Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to the newest edition of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucet. Today we have a very special guest, someone I, I first met about probably 15, 16 years ago when I was judging professional MMA fights. Um, and, and I've told this to many people in, in all my years of martial arts, probably one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. So welcome to the show, uh, Mr. Nice you. Guy, Brock Larson. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Don't tell <laughs> don't tell everybody that. I don't want them all to think I'm a nice guy. I got a reputation to uphold. Yeah. But I'm serious. I've said that so many times to so many people. And I've met a lot of guys too who are jerks in, in the pro MMA world and and you've always just been super nice to everyone I've seen you around, everyone you interact around, just the just your personality and that says a lot about you, which is cool. Yeah, you know, it's mm. always it's always kind of been I, I've always been fairly humble, grew up on a farm and my parents always told me, um, if it doesn't hurt you, if it doesn't cost you money, it doesn't hurt someone else. Be nice, helping people out. So that's kind of something that, I mean, growing up on a farm was kind of a pain in the butt because you always had to work. But at the yep. end of the day, I think it kind of helped mold kind of a more of a of who I am and more of a personal being because I know sometimes life isn't easy and not everything's given to you. So right. I, just, I know life can be hard for some people. So sometimes by just being happy and saying hi and being being a smiley face might, might help someone out, you know, there, there you go. That's a great, great attitude to have. So let's kind of back up then. Um, you talked about growing up on farm. You grew up near Brainerd, Minnesota. Uh, yep. Yep. Out east, of, east of Brainerd. Uh, my mom and dad owned about 300 acres had about 80 head. They're still farming today. And I still get out there and get shit on my boots every once in a while and help <laughs> nice. them out. So that says a lot of what your work ethic do in the gym too. I suppose that a lot of that translates to it. Yeah. I think a lot of that did. I mean, it's obviously growing up on a farm, you have to get up early and you have to take care of the cows. They don't take care of themselves and you know, get out there and bale the hay to feed the cows and do all that stuff that when you're a kid, you're thinking this is a, why can't I just be a town kid? <laughs> you know, I get on my bike and go right, bike around with my friends, but said I got to get up and feed the cows and yeah. But at the end of the day, I think it did. I mean, showed good work ethic. Nothing's going to get done unless you do it. And it's still going to be there if you procrastinate. So you might as well just get up and do it. So it's done. So you can get on with your day. And I've taken a lot of that approach with my training, with my career and with my teaching, with everything, just kind of, let's just do it. And, you know, and I enjoy it. So it makes everything a lot easier. Nice. Now you started wrestling at a young age. Was wrestling your first, uh, experience with martial arts in any way? Yeah. You know, I started by watching AWA and I thought I wanted to be Superfly Jimmy Snuka or the Midnight Rockers or some of those Hawk and Animal, kind of those old school, uh, Greg Gagne guys. And, uh, I went into wrestling thinking we were body slamming and stuff. And then they started grabbing the legs and like hugging and squeezing. I'm like, well, this is weird, but I'm here. So let's, <laughs> let's see what it turns into. And then ended up obviously falling in love with wrestling and still love wrestling this day. I ended up after I graduated high school, 
um, coaching wrestling for like five years and then uh, moved on to martial arts after that. And how did you find martial arts? Did that, is that just happen by chance or do you have a friend that recommended it? It was a, it's a kind of a weird story. <laughs> I was a wrestling coach, like I said, and one of my buddies from high school is like, I want to fight. I'm like, Oh yeah, we all fight. You know, he's like, no, I want to do like that UFC stuff. Like the Gracie's do. I'm like, what? <laughs> and uh, he's like, but I don't know how to grapple. And at that time, Jiu-jitsu, wrestling, seemed to be pretty much the same thing. You just yep. grab people and you try to bend things. Um, so uh, we started at the junior high, Franklin Junior High Wrestling Room, and I got in there and we started grappling with chokes and trying to hurt each other. Like everything that's illegal in wrestling, let's like, go ahead and let's <laughs> try that. So that's kind of how I started. And the fact that he was going to be the fighter, I was going to be the coach. But somewhere along the lines, he ended up, well, end up with anxiety issues and when he would go compete he'd vomit and he just gets super super sick and just couldn't handle the pressure of competing and at that time we're still we're still training and then we kind of picked a fight tried picking a fight we thought we were really tough with minnesota martial arts academy <laughs> so we called them guys up and we're like hey we want to come down and spar and they're like well don't come down and spar we'll have a tournament our first tournament that we're ever going to do the first grappling tournament in minnesota is going to be in two weeks you guys just come down and do that we're like oh perfect <laughs> So I got on to the very first submission hunt, and that's when I realized jiu-jitsu wasn't a bunch of tough guys in a wrestling room trying to squeeze each other's heads. I ended up winning the white belt division, but I realized there was a lot more to it than that. And I'm watching these blue belts, which back then in the 90s, early 2000s, blue belts were gods. Yeah. They're like black belts now, it seems like, you know, and uh, watching these guys move, and it's like, wow. So then we're like, well, we're going to train these guys. I seen this guy, Sean Shirk, did a no-gi match. And I'm watching him. I'm like, whoa, that guy's super tough. Uh, well, we should train with these guys. So then we ended up, I ended up, we ended up coming down to the academy three days a week and just training with those guys. And I was getting the snot kicked out of me <laughs> every day. And I, every day I left there, I had to check my ego and be like, I wanted to quit. Like, this is stupid. Just like everybody goes through. And I was kind of spoiled at first because I was with a bunch of other people that didn't know anything. And I was the best grappler. But then when I got reality checked, it was hard for the ego. I was mm -hmm. a big, strong wrestler, a state runner-up, multi-all-state guy. And I was like the, one of the best athletes in the room. And then I'm getting beat by these long-legged, weak, frail looking people and I'm like it doesn't make any sense in my head right bigger stronger faster right no no so that's kind of how it got started and like i said my buddy realized that he can't compete and shirk and some of the guys at the academy including my my buddy in uh, brainerd was like you gotta fight i'm like no way <laughs> you guys see what sean's doing to me every day because i was like sean's one of sean's main training partners at that point because i was just he he enjoyed beating the crap out of a big strong kid and uh <laughs> so that's kind of how it started and then they're like they're like no you should try to take a fight i'm like dude there's no way i'm getting killed they're like not everybody's like sean i'm like i don't care it's not even close they're kind of like sean i'm gonna die uh, but they talked me into the just take one fight. Well, just take one fight. So I ended up going I, for Bruce Nelson. Was yep. my first fight. Was supposed to be oh, wow. supposed to be with Bruce Nelson, okay. um, in Ada, Minnesota, and uh, we drove all the way down there. And I was supposed to f fight Josh Hartwell from Alexandria, who was a state runner-up. So it was a fair matchup. I was a state runner-up. He's a state runner-up. Ended up not happening. Got down there. Josh didn't show up for whatever reason it was. Okay. And at that time, they said, "Do you want to do a round robin? We've got this kid from Canada, and then we've also got um, this." Uh, other kid, Kyle Olson. And okay. I'm like, whoa. And I seen at that time, Kyle Olson was three and oh, and I looked at him I'm like, there's no way we're in the same weight class. They're like, well, we don't really do weight classes. <laughs> I'm like, he's as long as you're close. 
And I'm like, no, no. My buddy's like, no, let's not do it. We're not ready for a, like a like a round robin kind of a fight where you'd fight two times in one night. I'm like, okay. And I was pooping my pants anyways. So I'm like, yeah, no, we'll just, I'll, I'll find a different time. Well, the guy I was nervous about ended up getting crushed by this dude from um, Canada. Then the gear started to turn. It's like, holy crap. Okay. This is, this is real. I mean, I got this guy from Winnipeg that just came down and smashed Kyle Olsen, who looks like a freak, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyways, didn't fight. Ended up having fights in Alexandria, put on by, uh, oh, his name's escaping me now, Iron Man, Travis Fulton. Oh, yeah. Travis Fulton in Alexandria. And he called me up and said, hey, uh, got your number from Bruce Nelson. You, know, you might want to fight. I'm like, yeah, sure. But if you're in Alexandria, I want to fight Josh Hartwell. He's from Alex. Makes sense. And they're like, done deal. That's what I was thinking. Like, okay. Showed up at Alexandria. Had five, six people there. And there, me and Josh, and I was really nervous. I mean, I always depended on my takedowns. It's kind of take, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to take this guy down probably. He's a state runner up. We're both going to kind of. So I went in there with that too. Like, I'm just going to try to knock him out. Mind you, I did not even know how to use my hands. <laughs> and I actually came out and hit him with a jab, dropped him, sp spun and took his back, hit him a couple times. He tapped out. I'm like, oh, this fighting stuff's <laughs> way easier than wrestling. And uh, so then That's then great. I fell in love with it, and then it's fighting ever since. So now was that first one considered? Was that? A, did they have amateur fights back then? Yeah, there was no pro. amateur circuit. Everything okay. was pro. Um, so my first fight was a pro fight against, I mean, and Josh had a better record than me. He was like 3-0 at that time. Mm -hmm. and uh, But it didn't really. Records were so weird and skewed. Nobody knew how to do anything back right. then. Um, there was the few freaks that Shirk, who was fighting in the UFC around that time already, and uh, I mean early UFC numbers, and um, or like a Travis Fulton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there, but it's a lot of the wrestlers were pretty dominant, and so if you were a good wrestler, jujitsu isn't like it is now, where you could take people down and beat them up. People didn't know really what to do. I right. mean, now jujitsu is like people are good with jujitsu. So you got to respect jujitsu so people can easily stand up because you can't just force and hold them down. You end up getting in trouble. So the game was a lot different then. Wrestlers were just kind of dominating the sport um, for quite a while. So both of us being wrestlers and then me really getting a lucky jab off that just kind of stunned them and dropped them. I was like, huh? So then, yeah, so it was great. So after that, did you decide time to start working with my hands a little more? Did you yes, start focusing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm like, wow. I mean, a little bit of false advertisement. I'm like, wow, if I work my hands, I could just really start just knocking people out. And it's so much easier to take people down if you can knock them out. And so then I, I actually went and started training at the academy, um, more to focus on the hands too. And my first sparring group was horrible. I'm training with Nat McIntyre, who's little, tiny little fella, but literally felt like he was hovering and kicking you with both legs and both hands at the same time. And I was like, ah. And then Shirk was one of my sparring, but then I had Big Ed, who he was a tie fighter, and Tom Schmitz, who was, I mean, all these guys knew how to fight. Right. And I was barely starting to figure out the grappling part of it. And then I'm entering this another chapter of the hands. So then about halfway through, probably about a year into working with my hands, we decided to switch me to Southpaw. My wrestler, every time I'd shoot to take people in, I'd switch my stance and shoot. So Greg and some of the guys at the camp is like, why don't you just try being Southpaw? You suck at hands anyway. So it <laughs> doesn't matter. We just need those, the, we just need you to set up 
your takedowns with your punches. And every time you go to take someone down, you're switching your stance, which is a tell. And everybody's going to be able to tell you're going to sh shoot in. So then we developed a lot of entries off my takedown and I became a southpaw. And then lo and behold, it was easier to knock people out because just throwing the left hand out there accidentally hits people and they fall down. So right. it works out well. <laughs> nice. And yeah, I mean, you, when you first started your career, you had a pretty good stream. I mean, you started 15 and 0. I mean, that's, yeah. even back then, that's still pretty impressive. Like you said, you know, the, the yeah. first few people, the three and all, some of those didn't matter. But when you get to 15 and 0, that's, yeah, they started, hunting me, they started hunting me down and I was getting people from out of state and out of region coming up to fight me to kind of get that, make that O disappear. And uh, everybody's goal was to get into UFC. Right. And you, back then you needed more than just a record. You right. needed to beat somebody and you need to beat someone with a good record because there was tomato cans everywhere. I mean, yeah. literally when I was fighting, they were pulling people out of the crowd to fight. So it's like, anybody here want to fight? We had someone. And then literally some drunk guy, drunk guy would come out of the crowd. I never fought one of those guys, but I wish I would have, that would have been fun. But um, no, but it, it was a true thing. I mean, back in the Brad Kohler days, I mean, he was throwing anybody in there. That kid that had a pulse. Well, there um, were some early events that I remember being at where there was better fights in the stands than there was in the, in the cage exactly. sometimes. I remember, I mean, I remember Sean fighting some of these guys and it's like, ah, this poor guy. Sean was nice. I remember uh, him fighting. He's like, you know what? I'm not even going to hit this guy. I'm just going to take him down and submit him. And literally shot in, took the guy down, head and armed him. Like, what a sweetheart. I mean, that's, I mean, he could have <laughs> done anything he wanted. Yeah. And he was like, I can't do this to this guy. And he just take him down and head and arm him. Um, but that was, some people would use that to showcase mm -hmm. their skills too. So they'd try to do that highlight head kick and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But, um, it was definitely kind of the cowboy days, cowboys, um, uh, back in wild west. Um, so yeah, although it was fun, the way we got it now is much better, much safer. Yes. And it's just, everything's regulated and it's, it's a lot better sport because of competition and agreed. I mean, you don't, you don't, you get an amateur circuit now where people are actually learning and they're not necessarily getting fed to a Sean Shirk, you know, right. to, um, just to fill the stands, you know, as a promoter, it's a little bit more difficult. I promoted both and it's easier just to call some guy and be like, Hey, Johnny, I need you to fight Jimmy. I'll pay you a couple hundred bucks. Okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. so promoter wise, it's a little more difficult because they got to go through the right steps, which again, it's safer. You got to get their blood work. They got to get their hep BC, HIV check. They got to go through a physical and all that stuff. So it's a, it's a little bit harder to, to, to become a fighter. But at the end of the day, if you want to be a fighter, it's not that big of a safer deal. and you're going to last longer. And right, yeah. Right. So those first three years, then when you first, I think you went pro in 2002 and you made your UFC debut in 2005. Those first so many fights, is there one or two that stood out that you think made the UFC take notice? Um, you know, obviously I fought John Fitch, my first fight and it was a, it was a decision and I lost. Um, it was a, it was a close fight though. It was very boring. I mean, typical John Fitch and Brock. I mean, we both <laughs> were grapplers, so it was just not much action. It was boring. So I fought and they cut me, uh, after my first fight. And then John went on to dominate the division, mm -hmm. um, went eight in a row in the UFC. Um, so they took notice at him at some point and which made them take notice at me. And I was still running through people at the, then in the local circuit. And so they're like, well, let's get them back here. Took a fight. I was 200 pounds, had to lose 30 pounds. Cause at that point I fought John Fitch at 185. Mm -hmm. And after that, both of us went down to 70. Um, I mean, looking at Rich Franklin and looking at those guys, it's like, okay, okay, I am not an 85 pounder. I remember my manager after I fought John Fitch brings Rich into my room. He's like, this is an 85 pounder. Fair enough. So I had went down to 70 at that point, And then, um, John was 
tearing it up. And so again, so short notice, like we need a fight. We're going to fight a Miramar, um, which is a Marine base, no fans allowed, you know, and, uh, we, we just, we need someone to fight on this card and we're going to have you fight Keita Nakamura. I'm like, okay. I'm, I'm like, Monty, I'm 200 pounds. I'm right now I'm doing concrete work and working another construction job. I'm working like 70 hours a week. He's like, you make weight, you win this fight. I'm like, okay. Cause mind you, there was some video, but not like it is now. Now you yeah. just, you, but I mean, so trying to find Nakamura who had fought over in Japan is almost impossible. Plus downloading it on, on uh, my high speed internet that I had dial up and it take seven days. So I didn't have no clue who he was. He's taking my manager's word for it. Literally made the weight, lost 30 pounds in like two and a half weeks. Got in there, gassed about three minutes in of the first round. But I was just like, a, I was just better. So it worked out. Um, I got I got the win. So then they, they signed me. Well, I was already signed, but then they, they said, and they actually, at that point, they're like, okay, look, we're, we've just bought this new organization, WEC. Take your contract and put it over there. We need guys who are going to be exciting and that can fight on short notice to take fights. Will you go over and, and fight with this organization? I was like, W what? <laughs> and my manager's like, no, I think this is a great career move. I'm like, really? Like, he's like, yeah. So did it. Went over there and it was great because it was live on TV, uh, free and kind of exposed fighting. And I was all over the place. It was great because they replayed it three, four times a week. Oh. And uh, it built up a following fast. It did. It I mean, did. there's still people today I run into like, oh, WC, I love the WC guys, yep. you know? And it, so the WC was great for me. And then I, I did a, I ran through um, the guys until I hit Condit. And then I freaking got arm barred. And then. Ran through the division again, again, um, and then when they dissolved the welterweight division, then they put us both. Me, Condon and I were the only two welterweights that they put over in the UFC, and then and I started back in the UFC. So I went UFC, WC, back to UFC, <laughs> and then then I started to get old, and then uh, <laughs> slow down. So that's kind of how that, and then it all folded. And then I actually the way it went down ended up. In my opinion, maybe not perfect. It would have been love, love to have been a world champion and fought in the UFC my entire career and made a bunch of money and did it. But the way I went, I kind of got to go. I fought, got to fight in one, which is a great experience over there. Got to fight Melvin Manhoff, who was a killer, and beat him, fight for the one title, you know. And I always say I'm always like the bridesmaid, so to speak. <laughs> I fought for three world titles, lost every time. Um, but at least I got there. Yeah, you got there. That's and, the you know, part. the one thing I can always say <clears throat> with pride and that I never cheated, like I never did any enhancements. Uh, I think my career would have been a lot different had I did because obviously you can keep that peak. Yeah. I mean, my peak was about two to three years. If I had kept that same level, I think I could have been a world champion. Um, but I just I always want, I always looked at my kids and I always wanted to be like, something morally there. I had to, I couldn't be, I couldn't cheat if I, otherwise it, it's different. It's always kind of a, a weird thing with me. And, but like now the way the UFC is, I mean, I wish I could go back now when it's a fair playing field. Cause I, everybody did it. I mean, yeah. it, it was, it wasn't who it's who wasn't right. doing it. And, um, and I, I mean, I know firsthand people were doing it and uh, we go to the big camps and train. And that's the first thing they, they want to give you, you know? Wow. Um, and I never did. And that's one thing I can say, like with the most pride is like, I never cheated. I never have, never will. And uh, at the end of the day, I'm pretty 
proud of that. I still was at the top, ranked number seven in the world at at some points, and fought for three world titles, and ended up finishing my career here in Minnesota on national TV. At the and actually, oddly enough, Dana White was there doing looking for his fight, and uh, so it was kind of neat, a good way to end the night. People ask me all the time, well, you know think about coming out of retirement. I mean, there's always like that fire. Like yeah. I always, I've watched some of these guys, especially now at the UFC where you see all these guys, there's so many fights that the, the pool at a lower level is watered down. It's right. not like, like it was. And it's like, well, I know I could beat that guy right now, <laughs> but I'm not in it just to win a fight. If I was to come out, it'd be, again, my goal would be to be a world champion. And I know the highest level is the best there's ever been. The lowest level, introductory level in the UFC isn't. Like, I, I seriously believe I could go in there and win a fight or two. But once I got to that next level, there's no way. Those champs, those guys that are at that level, even like Tony Martin, who's right breaking in the 15, him and I train quite a bit. And as a martial artist as a whole, he's way better than I am. You know, I still still got the advantage in the grappling, but as a whole, <laughs> he's a much better martial artist than me. And, and he's like top 15. And right. so in reality, I know I can't compete at that level anymore. So that's what stops me from actually doing it because i mean we're all fighters until we die and we think yeah there's a fire in there and but i smart enough to realize that uh i retired for a reason you know that's good at least you got the brains for yeah, that yeah, so, yeah. so back back up a little bit you mentioned uh, of course the, the weight cut the 200 down to 170 what are your thoughts on weight cutting that's always been a controversial topic uh, you know the the lots of weight and short amount of time what are your thoughts i think on that? excessive weight cutting like that for an example is ridiculous um, but I kind of like Dan Gable's approach on weight cutting. He's like, weight cutting creates discipline. And if you're not watching what you eat and you're not, you're not um, concentrated on your body, mm-hmm. I think there's something to it. Now, excessive weight cutting, yeah. Like cutting 30 pounds in two and a half weeks is horrendous. It's the stupidest thing a person could do to their body. Um, but I think being disciplined, like if I had eight weeks, 70 was, was never easy because- yeah. You can't eat what you want to eat, but it was feasible. And then I it was, but I was at a good athletic peak position actually. Um, so I think like weight cutting is good again to create discipline. And Tony said it too, like he cut a lot of weight and he always said, it's the one thing I can control in my weight camp. It's the one thing I can control is what I put into my body. And that's another good point. It's like, everything's going a hundred miles an hour in your training camps. And you're thinking this, you think the one thing you can slow down and control is your diet. When you eat, how you eat, and all that stuff. So I think a smart weight cut mm-hmm. with time is good. But the problem is, it's like, hey, you got to fight Nakamura. Here's an opportunity. Right. You know, and now, I mean, there's actually starting to be money. So I'll use Tony, Tony for an example again. Um, you take a fight short notice in Australia, you're going to make $80,000. It's a good matchup. But now you've got to lose 30 pounds to get down to 55. Right. You know, it's like, God, I can beat this kid. So now you're weighing everything. It's like, I'm going to get another win. I'm going to put another notch on my belt. I'm going to make 80 grand. Another, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But I got to make this freaking weight. So you weigh it out. And in that moment, you're not hungry. You're not dehydrated. You're not starving. You're like, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> and then about the week before the fight, you're thinking, this is the dumb, I'm never doing this again. This is the dumbest thing I could ever do. So um, that is where the weight cuts get tricky, yeah. is the short notice fights. If you are are disciplined and you have eight weeks to make your weight, there's no reason not to make your weight. If you have three weeks, it gets sketchy and some people break and uh, it's, it's hell. So. so what do you think of like the ones where like they make weight the night before 
And then they go out and gorge and they're 20 pounds heavier for their fight the next day. There again is discipline. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> I was lucky. I was blessed as I had Luke Popham who was brown belt and he was a nutritionist. He owned his own gym. He was like, he was perfect fit for my camp because he'd control what I put in my mouth. Tell me what I'd eat. If I had my checkpoint on three weeks out, I'm three weeks out. Luke, I'm 184. Okay, take the apple out of your diet. I like my apples. So <laughs> take the apple out, my weight would drop, you know, and then he would regulate everything. Wow. And uh, so I was blessed on that part. And then I learned a lot in the process too. So I can help the current guys a little bit with their weight. And uh, so, and again, I wanted to eat cake <laughs> after I weighed in as well. But Luke, Luke was always right there. No, you're not eating cake. You can eat some more chicken. Have some more chicken. You want some pasta? Have some pasta. No white sauce. You have red sauce. <laughs> you know, no, keep the dairy out, you know. And he was, every time he was right. Because after the fight, I'd go eat whatever I wanted and I would shit my guts out, so to speak. Excuse my language. <laughs> okay. But uh, so, like, everything he said was right, even though I didn't want to hear, but he was like, I respected him, trusted him. I'm like, fine, you're right. You know, so, but that again is discipline. I mean, it's hard when you've been watching your weight and you ain't been eating anything. And now you make your goal as that weight. It's like, go eat some cake, have some pie, eat some cheeseburgers, you know, whatever it might be. And uh, so again, that's just discipline. And if you're out to win fights and you're out to be the best in the world, that shouldn't make or break your fight camp. Yeah. So again, if you hydrate right and everything, you're not going to balloon up um, as much as, you, as long as you're drinking the right fluids. So it's the difference uh, between the guys who take it seriously and the, and the people who are just doing it for the money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's different. It's all about how you look at yourself as a professional. Right. And there's, some people don't consider the diet part of the profession. Some people just think just the gyms. Some people go crazy over the nutrition and have to have 100 rest days because my body says I need a rest, but they're not in the gym. So it's, it's such a, and balancing out and trying to find the right, the right fit. Right. So talking about balance, uh, back to when you were fighting. Now, when you were fighting, you were also, at the same time, if I remember correctly, you were also promoting and you were also coaching and had your own team. So I mean, how did you balance that out doing all that stuff? Yeah, it was crazy. A lot of people, uh, like you said, I'm the nicest guy in MMA. Some people said I'm the busiest guy in MMA. <laughs> um, but I just always love being busy. I like, I like using my hands. I like doing stuff. And I kind of embrace the grind and embrace the chaos. And... Anybody who's been around any of the fights that I promoted, it's freaking chaos. Uh, so, um, I remember the one in Brainerd with the uh, the outdoor one with the rain. Oh, and he had to send, he sent like eight guys to Walmart to get paper towels yeah. and mops. Oh, and it was <laughs> horrible. Well, the story about that one, um, we had a tent. It blew off the night, before. and it blew off yeah. the night before. We had this That's huge right. rainstorm, and it saturated the ground. We had. Three foot stakes in the ground holding that monster of a tent. It was a hundred by 30 tent. Like a circus tent, yeah. Yeah. And it rained and rained and rained and saturated the ground. And then the thing ended up across freaking town. And then we didn't have time to put it back up again. So we're like, well, let's roll the dice, boys. And obviously, we ended up having to take like an hour break. Yep. In between, and uh, everybody headed inside. Then we came back out. Then we're fighting the darkness. And we just, it was like, yeah, it was chaos. See what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, but, we got it, it but we got fun. it done. We got it done. And uh, it, was, it was good. It was good. Nice. So let me ask you this. And you're, as a parent, you have kids. Now, first of all, do your kids do martial arts? They have. They have done a little bit. But for the most part, no, they're, mm -hmm. uh, 
they they're not they wrestle they do some sports they've wrestled they've done they've done about every sport known to man they've done soccer gymnastics wrestling swimming uh, football and uh they just haven't really fallen my youngest really enjoys football okay um but the other two really haven't found their niche and it's it's a hard spot for me because i think they should be doing sports all the time whether whether what that sport might be whether it's a martial arts or whether it's a whatever competing or something because i just think you get that team unity and you you find friends within what you're doing. And you typically, those people, I have to be careful how I say this, are not better people, but they're they're doing something that's not naughty. There. Right. I don't know. I have to be careful how I say that, but because yeah. not everybody who doesn't do sports are bad kids. Oh, yeah. But, there's other things they can get involved in. But there's in something too, that but, in common yeah. with your friends that you can do that's healthy. Exactly. Maybe that's a better way to say it. So let me ask you this then. As a teacher, as a parent, if so, I ask this all, of all my guests, if someone were to approach you and say, hey, I'm thinking of getting my kids involved in martial arts, what tips would you give them? What to, to look for in a school? What to look for in an instructor? Well, obviously, when, when they come to this school, we give everybody a two week trial. Because I, I say this, and you probably know from doing martial arts well, mm-hmm. not every instructor gels with the kid or the parents. Not every school is a good fit. Time schedules sometimes aren't the best. Sometimes people don't know what jiu-jitsu is. They come in and think it's taekwondo. And they're like, so my advice is go to all the schools. They have a free trial. Take advantage of the free trial. See what's the best fit. Make sure the instructor gels with your kids. And then money shouldn't matter. At the end of the day, um, but sometimes it does. So you got to understand the pricing because you don't want to be like, yes, I'm in love with the school and then not be in your budget. Right. So everything matters. But really, I think the most important thing is just making sure the kid gels and you're not forcing the kid. The kid wants to be there. You're not like, no, this is what I did. I did karate. I did taekwondo. I did. I did. I did. I did. So I want my kid to do this. I think it's best just to kind of let your kid feel it out try it out, make sure it's a good fit, and then make that work. Nice. That's a great answer. So a couple more fun questions just to kind of to wrap it up. First, first of all, is uh, for all your years in martial arts, is there like a, a specific philosophy that you've gained from martial arts that you that you really, you know, holds true to your heart or, or? Yeah, you know, someone told me this once, and I don't know who it was. If it was a Dan Gable quote, a Greg Nelson quote, my grandpa's quote. I don't know whose quote <laughs> it was, but um, make excuses to train not excuses not to train. So everybody always has an excuse. And someone told me that, and I wish I could remember because I use that quote all the time. I want to put it on my walls in here. But every time I would tell myself, oh, I'm sore, I'm not going to go train, that quote would pop in my head. I'm making excuses not to train, making an excuse to train. Well, I need to go train now because I need to get better. I need my opponent's training or whatever it might be, that quote, and I tried looking that quote up and I can't find out, I can't find it. But... Um, I want to think it was a Dan Gable quote, but I've looked up all Dan Gable's quotes and I haven't been able to find it. So I want to give the right credit to the right person. I just don't know where it came from. So that quote, make excuses to train, not excuses not to train is like, literally I would catch myself all the time. I don't need to run heels today. My legs are tore. I did kettlebells. I did, I did training. But then it's like, Oh, you just made an excuse. Get your ass out there. And so I always make excuses to train. Find that excuse why you got to go in, not the excuses why you don't have to go in. I like that. Um, so that's kind of my thing. Nice. And do you have a favorite martial arts book, either that you just like yourself or you've recommended other people? You know, not much of a reader, unfortunately. So not not especially. I mean, I would love to have a great 
book that I could say, hey, this one's the best. But no, I'm not, not much of a reader. Um, so I have to I have to say no. Oh, that's, I don't, that's I okay. I don't got nothing. I don't got nothing. <laughs> You're not the first one. So that's okay. That's okay. And final question. Is there a favorite martial arts TV show and or movie that you really love? It's like your guilty pleasure, your go-to. If it's on, you got to watch it. Well, it's kind of cheating, but Vision Quest. Um, Wrestling, yes. Was it old yep. 70s? Uh, early 80s. Early 80s. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rob Lowe, I think, yeah. was in it. Patrick Swayze. I mean, that was, I lo- I like, that was, that's kind of the movie that I go back to. And it, other than that, I mean, it's Karate Kid, you know, the original Karate Kid, which is just like great, like morals and like how you got to be patient and develop. And sometimes you're developing skills that you don't even know you're developing. You're just going through the training. Like there's a lot into that movie that, when I first watch it, it's like, uh, yeah, it's a cool movie. People are kicking each other in the head. It's great. But then, like, as you grow older and you watch it, and you get a little bit more out of the movie than you did as a, as a kid. So that that's actually a, probably, if you're straight up martial arts, that'd probably be the one. I always tell people Mr. Miyagi was my first karate instructor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> great guy. So, well, Brock, I just want to thank you again. Seriously, yeah. thanks for taking the time to sit down with us and chat today and getting to know a little more about you. I, I truly appreciate it. And uh, uh, we'll go ahead and stick a link for your school in, in the notes for the podcast and, and talk about it. And if you have any other events coming up, I know right now not much is going on in the world, but I, I know no, you, you still do some promoting when you can and stuff. So, yeah, we're going to try to do some stuff in Brainerd. We got the takedown gym that's going to, we can do promotions whenever we want to. It sounds like up there. So we'll do something there and just do one or two shows a year and cool. keep the guys busy. Well, we'll let people know about it. So once again, thanks for your time. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.